Is this a podcast? Is this just fantasy? Yes, it's a podcast. It's Escape from Reality. Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Escape from Reality, the podcast all about escape games and escaping. I'm Mark, an escape game enthusiast and blogger from the northwest of England, and tonight once again I'm joined by Ken. Hello Ken. Hello viewers. Oh, listeners. <laughs> uh, we made it to episode 2. Really pleased with how things have gone in the week since we published the first episode. We're recording this on Thursday the 21st of April, although you won't hear it for another week or so yet. And uh, just in the six days since we published that first episode, we've had over 200 listens on SoundCloud. And that's largely before it's been shared out via iTunes and Podbeans and other such applications and stuff. So possibly a few more listens to come in the future. Yeah, and I've been hearing some uh, good feedback from some of the people I know. Very nicely com- complimenting me on the uh, the podcast, which seems a bit unfair because it is mainly your work. But yeah, they all seem to have enjoyed it quite a lot. Yeah, I've been I've been thrilled with the feedback I've received as well. I was kind of anticipating that people would be saying, "Yeah, it's a good first attempt, but you need to think about this or you need to improve that." But everyone's just been lovely and said it's uh, a great start and great to hear people talking about escape games and interesting topics and wanted it to continue so the acid test will come if people tune into episode two now so that's something to look forward to one thing i want to mention was my favorite piece of feedback which was from i can't remember who it was but it was an owner or somebody who was starting up an escape room and saying they were finding really useful stuff we talked about giving them some some thoughts about mistakes they might make or or ideas of how they could make the experience as good as possible um, because in the end, one of the things I'd really like to get out of this is that we get a better industry, that we get better games, that we get to, to play better games. Yeah, that, that's fantastic feedback. Also interesting, you just mentioned owners that being contacted by one or two owners already saying, love the podcast, can we come on and, and talk to you guys and give our view, which is absolutely something I hope to do in the future. Just sort of establishing that we know what we're talking about and can get into the flow of things first, but certainly some, an idea to explore in the future and get other people's views and insights into different parts that we don't necessarily see just as, as players and fans. Yeah, I think that would be, be fantastic. Okay, so we've got the same basic structure as last time, not to say agenda. Same basic structure as last time with reviews, ideas for going beyond the padlock and then pet peeves towards the end. I'm going to switch things up slightly this week and I'm going to start with the review and then uh, Ken will come in on ideas for beyond the padlock. So without further ado, let's cue Craig David. So the review we're going to talk about this week is one that I've been mentioning on my blog I wanted to come back and talk about a number of times but haven't had chance and this has given me the perfect opportunity to talk about it now and that is Bad Clone from Escape Quest in Macclesfield. Now Bad Clone is really interesting for a number of reasons and all of them are kind of interesting in some way or another so we'll talk about them and then that might progress into something else anywhere. So the first thing I I was going to mention really is that 
Of all the reviews I've written so far, this one is the one I'm most proud of. That's not necessarily massively interesting to the to the guys who are listening, but there's only so many ways you can say, oh yes, the decoration was quite nice and it had some interesting puzzles without sounding the same in every review. So this one, taking inspiration from a couple of other things I'd read online, I'd really tried to get into character and explain some of the bits about the room and how I'd experienced and how much I'd enjoyed it whilst keeping in with the theme. I'm not sure whether people thought that was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was certainly more entertaining to write it that way and it's something I'm hoping to do more in the future. And maybe anyone who gets a chance to to read the review, I'll put the link, make the link available, can tell me whether they thought it was worth the effort or not. I can tell you right now, at least one person did, because I thoroughly enjoyed that review. Although it did uh, it did show me some of your inner psyche that uh, maybe you didn't really... Well, I guess you did want to, to share, because you put it in the, in the write-up, but uh, yeah, that kind's really interesting. I'm, I'm really excited about talking about it, because it's a game that I've been wanting to play for a long time. I, it's stuck somewhere in between where um, I live and where my parents live, but I haven't quite managed to make it along to the um, to play it yet, and I've been trying to engineer a, a reason to go to go to that area and bring along some of my escape room friends. So um, I want to hear more about it, and I also want you to mention whether or not you did the 60-minute or 90-minute game because wow. I can't remember. Yeah. So the first thing to set the scene for people for the for the listeners, picking up on what you've just said there, is where Bad Clone and Escape Quest is. It is in a small town called Macclesfield, which you probably haven't heard of, possibly even if you live in the UK. It's uh, in the northwest, about 45 minutes away from Manchester, and has a population of just 50,000 or so, um, according to Wikipedia. Yet, they are one of the longest established escape games in the country. When I looked into this at the time of writing the review, they were one of the first 25 sites running in the UK and at that time um, more than 50% of them were in London and the others were sp- sprouting up in big cities like Manchester, Leeds, Edinburgh, etc. So I think that gives you a little bit of an insight into the type of site we're talking about here that it wasn't built with an intention of we need to put it in a big city because we want it to get as many people in as possible and to build a business profit empire. It was more a case of we want to build a room or a set of rooms and this is where we live so let's make them here and hope to attract people to, to play the games because they're interested in them, not just because it's necessarily the most convenient for them. And I think that's an interesting design decision before you even get into the content of the room. Yeah, I... Um... I sometimes refer to them as destination rooms, rooms that aren't just rooms you play because you happen to be in an area, but where you actually travel to get to them. And there are a few of them in the country. There aren't many, but definitely, to my mind, Escape Quest is one of those. With that in mind, Mike and Elaine, who I think may be listening because they retweeted our first episode, have taken some decisions that are different to the norm for Escape Games in the UK, uh, because they wanted to, and because that was the game they wanted to make. So, first of all, it is 90 minutes long, not 60 as usual, or even 45 in some countries. Number two, it engages live actors, 
which I believe is one of only two places I know that do that, or actually th three places I've heard, because one site nearby me has changed the room to include a live actor now, which is quite interesting. And also that they, they were going to make it openly scurry and tap into... Uh, well, people who enjoy haunts or scare attractions, which over in the US, I believe, is massively popular, whereas over here is still seen as a real tiny niche just associated with Halloween, really. Yeah, it's worth saying that while it is a niche in the UK, I think it is a bigger market than the escape rooms at the moment. Um, there certainly are a lot of scare attractions across the UK, although by no means as big as they would be in the States. So all these things combined have given kind of a different direction and idea towards playing a game but I think other proprietors have seen this and thought about that might be an avenue they want to go down now because I've seen at least two other sites uh, just near where I live that have come up with very similarly sounding themed games since Bad Clown opened so whether they, they've taken their inspiration from that or it was just a massive coincidence is for the courts to decide. But um, it, it, it's interesting that this has been seen now as, as a good idea. You also mentioned the, the, did I play the 90 or 60 minute version? So I, I played the original uh, 90 minute Bad Clone. The owners have responded to feedback that some people... Uh, not only a bit apprehensive of doing um, anything scary, but definitely won't. So they've also come up with a 60-minute version of the same room called Funhouse. And I spoke to the guys after we played the room and said, well, what's the difference? There's no scary bits, there's no live actors, and there are one or two puzzles reduced because Funhouse plays in 60 minutes rather than 90 but obviously the setting and your objectives are exactly the same. So there's one other thing which, um, which you haven't mentioned so far, which I thought you might bring up, um, which is, if I understand correctly, um, Mike and Elaine run all the games, don't they? They'll only run one of their, is it three games they've got on the site? Three at the moment and a fourth being developed. Okay. And so they only run one of them at a time. They won't, they won't run two of them in parallel. As far as I'm aware, yes. Uh, they just could because they're so focused on delivering their version of the the game, and not necessarily by how busy they can be. They'll just commit to to one game at once. Very handily for us because we when we went to play Bad Clone, we got delayed by traffic as the team were travelling from all over everywhere, and phoned through to the site and say I'm afraid we're not going to be there for our seven o'clock start time is it okay if we come later and they very friendly and accommodatingly said don't worry about it you're the only guys playing tonight get here when you can which again isn't something you'd get um, in all places yeah I guess the, the likes of um, the big big city franchises they tend to have a whole stream of rooms and um, people going into them every hour and a quarter every hour and a half and and they just can't make an allowance for someone turning up late. One of the, the real pains of escape rooms, I think, is the fact that you have to try and aim to arrive in that very narrow window just before your, your slot, but not too much before and also not too much after. Uh, it's always a bit of a pain. I've only skimmed over quite a few of the, the headings there, but already lots of things to differentiate it from a normal room. But the big thing I wanted to pick up on 
is what they call golden tickets. So the purpose of the room is obviously to escape, but it is not measured on escape time, like so many games are. It is on how many golden tickets you can escape with. And this is an idea that in a small number of games that I'm aware of at the moment, the other most obvious example for me being The Vault in Warrington, and in that game you are tasked with uh, collecting poker chips which represent money and you're trying to get out as quickly as you can. However, how the vault plays out is that you come across the majority of the poker chips just in the course of your escaping. And you need to find them and put them in a bag and carry on about what you're doing. And then when you finally get towards the end, you've got an opportunity to go back and look for more. The golden tickets in Bad Clown don't work like that. You have a mission to escape that will bring you into contact with certain golden tickets, but the majority of them come from what you would call in a video game as side quests. So you've got to make your way through this escape challenge, which is every bit as challenging as you would get in a normal escape game experience, but you've also got to think about well, have I got time to indulge in this side quest or this activity now in order to get enough tickets to go up the scoreboard? And you've got a constant sort of battle there about should I break off and do this now? Or will I? should I race through to the end and then go back to that? But will the opportunity still be the same? Because they've even built into it tokens that you get as part of the game that you can only use once and if you choose to use it in this activity then it won't be there for you later on. So there's all these types of other things to think about as well as the fact that you're doing an escape game as well as the fact that it's a very different escape game to what you're normally used to. I could go into a lot more detail on this but I'm very conscious of drifting into spoilers territory because I want people to fully embrace this room um, if they get the chance to play it and learn all the fun things that they, they can get involved in and how they embrace the fun house carnival type theme without obviously spoiling exactly what happens. Yeah, I'm just desperate to go and play this game now. I'm just sitting here thinking, what can I do to uh, engineer a visit up to Macclesfield? Yeah, until I do that, it's just going to frustrate me. And the final twist that they have in store for you, and I don't think this classes as a spoiler, is that you can't open the door and then hold it open and go back and look for more golden tickets. Part of the game is, as you open the door, that's the end of your game. Ooh. So again, in that decision-making process, it's do we dig more or do we go for the door? And if the door you can't get the door open then in the last few moments, you've left it too late, then you get no golden tickets because you don't get out. Oh, this is a bit Crystal Maze-like. <laughs> I like we've done that. Uh, absolutely. So, absolutely. They've come up with so many different ideas. They've not been confined by what a normal definition of escape game is and just put all these different things together. And I mentioned in a review long ago when we visited Time Run in London, is it fair to call this an escape game when it's so different to so many others out there? And this is the first game I've visited since then that has posed that same question to me. This is a brilliant form of entertainment, but 
is it strictly speaking an escape game? Maybe not, but um, certainly one that I'd recommend to anybody. Okay, so on that theme of golden tickets and measuring performance during an escape game, we're going to go beyond the padlock and talk about this some more. Watch closely, because remember, the clues are there as we go. Beyond the padlock. Yeah, so you brought up the, the subject of golden tickets, and I'd like to talk about that on a more general level in escape rooms. And I've come up with a, a somewhat grandiose term for that. I don't know if I made it up myself or if I, uh, I probably found it from uh, something online, um, but I'd like to call it non-binary win conditions. And by that, I mean, at the end of the game, it isn't just a straight, you get out or you don't. There's more to it than that. So golden tickets and the vault, those are classic cases of where you've got effectively a point score. Um, you know, it might be measured in money, it might be measured in golden tickets, but when it comes down to it, it is very much a point. You've got a points uh, tally when you leave the room, and that puts you onto some leaderboard somewhere. Uh, and obviously, we already have the concept of when people leave the room in terms of the time they've taken as another way of um, measuring their, how well they've done, and in some cases, the number of clues they've taken. But I think there are other things you can do to make a, a game uh, more exciting. And it all stems from my feeling that I really want to win at the games, and if you've got a very low escape rate of, say, 15%, then that means a lot of people go away feeling like they've failed. And people argue that you can um, you can play a game and fail to get out, but still really enjoy it. And I'm sure that's true with the right games, but I can't help but feel that, that getting out makes it more enjoyable. And if I was a, a game designer, I'd be thinking, well, I want people to enjoy my game as much as possible, I want them to, and if I was a game owner, I'd want them to be leave me good feedback so i would be trying to make the game as positive as possible so what i've been thinking about is well how can you change a game to make it so that most people get out but there are still different challenges so that the people who are enthusiasts can play the game and um, get their 50 minute game and really enjoy it and people who are less experienced can turn up and can play that same game and still get out and maybe approach the 60 minutes maybe just fail to get out but enjoy it just as much so I've been thinking about the different options. Golden Clown and uh, Clue HQ's The Vault, they give you a score at the end of the game. Um, so maybe you're collecting money, maybe you're collecting um, golden tickets. And you can generalize that still further by saying, well, you don't have, it doesn't have to be a strict score. It can just be multiple goals in the game. So that might be that you have to, uh, I don't know, escape from a serial killer. But then once you escape from a serial killer, you also want to collect some evidence about uh, about the, the killer so that you can get him convicted uh, or maybe even information that will help to rescue other captives and straight away you've got something which isn't so obviously computer gamey scoring mechanism but just feels like oh yeah I've got I'm trying to do something and there are uh, as you put it earlier side quests and I think those very well in terms of giving people um, the option to do more things but there is a risk that by doing that you encourage people to bite off more than they can chew. So the flip side of doing that kind of stuff is the game host can make the same decisions for the players. Now, I imagine this would be quite contentious. Uh, if I was playing a room, I'd want to make all the decisions about whether or not I follow a particular side quest. But I know that some games do make those decisions for you, in particular ones which have a great variety in terms of the size of teams. So say you've got a room which can take uh, up to eight players that might be played with only 
two or three, say, then it makes sense to have some mechanism to make that room easier. Now, now some venues remove an entire puzzle from the game. And some other ones will change the games you're going through so that you have, a, have an easier task to get past or they give you uh, more help to get past a particular part of the game. It's not quite as simple as giving you a clue that will help you, but maybe they do something that makes the room slightly easier. Now, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do, but it's definitely an option and one that, that some companies have gone down. Well, the defence to it, in a lot of cases, is we don't want to have spent all this time and effort coming up with puzzles or features of the rooms that people then don't get the opportunity to see because we've guided them away from that because they don't have time. But the obvious counter-argument to me from a player's perspective is if I run out of time, I've not experienced everything in the room anyway because I don't know what happens at the end. I think that's a very good point. And computer games do this. You know, lots of people won't see the whole of the computer game, but we still design them to be as big as possible to allow people to who are very good to get the, the full experience. And I think, yeah, there's a balance. You don't want to design your game with a whole chunk of stuff that most people will never see. But it's certainly possible to put in a few extra puzzles along the side, which some people will see and some people won't. And they don't have to be the best parts of the game. In fact, I would say they, they shouldn't be the best parts of the game. The best parts of the game should be the parts that people, that all the people see. But you can add extra puzzles into a game, or not so much add extra puzzles, but maybe choose to leave them in there when you're doing your playtesting and saying, well, these puzzles are the ones which we think um, the experts will play, but we can bypass them in some way. Oh, and one of the challenges that faces the industry at the moment is how do you make a game that is fun for new people and for experienced hobbyists as well? Because we know that 90% plus of players are still playing their first ever game, so it can't be too difficult or complicated that will turn them off. Yet if you only design for them, once people have played two or three games, they're going to be getting bored of doing starter puzzles in each and every room and looking for something more. So this seems to me like a great opportunity to put in uh, side quests or even Easter eggs or whatever you want to call them, where people who have got more time in the room, arguable because they've got more ability or more experience, to get more out of it, yet doesn't affect that central critical path through. Yeah, you have to be a little careful, I think. Part of the reason that some games become very easy when you're experienced is because they're not varied enough. That the, the puzzles they've got are just bog standard, very simple puzzles. Um, I think you have to be careful you don't use adding extra puzzles in as a way of making your main puzzle set, uh, not, not working on making your main puzzle set as exciting. Um, I think if you make the main puzzle set very good and make it different from most other operations, most other games in your area or in your country, then that goes a long way to making the game more challenging and keeping people on a more even footing. Certainly the games which I've got out fastest have always been the games where the puzzles were pretty basic, that they were the, the sort of puzzles you see in a lot of escape rooms. As soon as you give me something that's a, a little bit unusual, then um, I struggle more and I think I'm on a more even footing with, with some of the, the, the novice escape room players. So what else can you do to, to make the game different? And, and this is kind of, it's moving away from the original goal and just talking about things that change the overall dynamic of the game, not just by having different puzzles in it, by, by changing the rules within the game. So the next one I want to talk about was changing the time limits. 
Now, this is one which I think, uh, particularly with you, you'll probably find slightly contentious. Uh, so there are, there are two options here. One is you can make it so that your game decreases its time under certain circumstances. Um, so that might be that you're in a room where you have to uh, defuse a bomb. And if you make a wrong decision, that bomb countdown timer will either start or will accelerate. Or it might be a game with a laser maze in it. And yeah, you're, so you're breaking into a museum. And if you set off, uh, if you touch the laser maze, then you are deducted minutes from your overall time. So there's a couple of ways in which you could reduce the time. Um, it doesn't really affect people based on how good they are at the game, though. So it's not ideal. You alluded to I might not like it, and I've been quite vocal about not liking it in one particular example. Yep. I think the key for it to me is whether the mistake is avoidable. In your example of defusing a bomb, if you cut the wrong wire or entered the wrong code because you've guessed or because you've done a puzzle incorrectly, I'd be fully on board with bleep, time shortened. If you're in a laser maze that's very difficult and you're not necessarily designed for going through laser mazes, just cutting that down because you can't do it seems a lot harsher to me, and that's that's the bit I'm not keen on. Yeah, I think that the issue here is where we swap from being a mental challenge to being a physical challenge. It's something which we don't talk a lot about in escape rooms, but fundamentally they're, they're mental challenges, they're not physical challenges. Although they're in the physical world, although we love the tactile nature of the, the games we play, it shouldn't be about your manual dexterity or your uh, physical ability. It's about how you can think and solve problems. And almost anything which relies on your dexterity or your physical prowess is, I think is kind of going away from the spirit of escape games. So while that is, while the laser maze is a good example of what, what you can do, I think I'm with you that you have to be very careful. I would be slightly more nuanced. I'd probably say it's okay to deduct one or two minutes, but it shouldn't be deducting a lot. The flip side of this is that you can add time on. Um, so if you're the sort of company that maybe gives you a two-hour slot to play your game in rather than an hour and 15 minutes, you know, there's a bit of slack there to, to play around, then what you could do is you could add a little bit of extra time on. You could dilate time towards the end of the game when it's starting to get stressful, when you're getting the adrenaline rushing, you can make it so the time doesn't go quite as quickly. You can either do that in a very obvious way by allowing the, the, the players to, well, giving the players extra time, or maybe there's something in the game which allows them to get extra time somehow. Or you can do it in a much more underhand way and just stretch those seconds out at the end. One idea I've always liked is um, if you were in a room which was maybe a submarine and you had what was called 60 minutes worth of oxygen, but was in fact not 60 minutes worth of oxygen, but 60 units of oxygen, and then towards the end, you could make it so that, well, we're going to give you a bit of extra time by saying that the oxygen at the end, you, you, you breathe a little bit more slowly and you try and uh, use every last second of it to, to get you through to the end of the game. And so, the, so you can vary the time in each direction and that allows you to make a game where people feel like they've played the whole game, but they've come pretty close to the wire. And I once played a game where that was done amazingly well. What they did was... Um, at some point during the game, something happened and a new timer started. And at that point, you had a fixed amount of time to get out of the game. And if you were a brilliant team, then that point might be at 40 minutes. And if you weren't so good, that might be up at 55. And what I liked about that was I play a lot of games where I get out 
in the 40s, maybe very early 50 minute mark. So I don't feel stress. I don't feel like, oh yeah, this game is really tight and under pressure. And there are some puzzles which work best when you have to, when you have to do them quickly, because they are much harder. And so it's really nice to have a game where, um, where that kind of thing happens, where suddenly um, the time limit changes while you're playing it, with the result that people who are generally very calm and able to do things suddenly just start to fall to pieces. So that very much gives the, the no, puts the novices and the experienced players back on an even balance because suddenly you have this, say, five-minute end game which you have to, to go through. Um, so what else can you do? Uh, you alluded earlier to gambles, where in your case we're talking about the golden tickets, um, where you're saying, well, do you stay a little bit longer and get a, a few more golden tickets or do you, do you leave the room now? And I think that that's a great idea and you can do that in lots of different way, ways. Um, I've always liked the idea of maybe there's some sort of one-use tool in the room which allows you to either open the exit door or open one more cupboard which will give you a chance to win some points or whatever it is you're, you're using to, to measure your game success. Um, and I, I think particularly for the more experienced players there's some fun in like well do I want to risk losing I really don't like losing but I also want to look like I'm at the top of the leaderboard how sort of having that battle having that decision made in the heat of the game would be I think a really fun challenge I guess the, the other thing that occurred to me was does everyone have to have the same level of success does everyone in your team have to to end up with the same uh, with the same result so one classic game that does this is trapped in a room with a zombie uh, so 12 people go into that room all 12 of them might get out but generally some of them get eaten some of them get uh, captured by the zombie and while the team as a whole might get out individuals don't necessarily get out and i think that's quite a nice challenge maybe it takes a little bit away from this escape room philosophy i don't know how you feel about that i think it's an interesting discussion and also start to really at the design phase is it a success if one person gets out or is it a success if everyone gets out because I've played various board games that that deal with this and they'll say it's fully cooperative therefore one person left behind loses the whole game or they'll say it's semi-co-op in which case you have to work together but the win condition is on an individual basis and whether you get out or you succeed the objective is good for you and bad for them and it could be that people choose to do certain actions in the game in order to get out of it what they want. So they might say making a sacrifice to help someone else escape is a, is a really fun thing to do, where others might think, no, I want to get out, otherwise it, it's a failure for me, and so every man for himself. Yeah, and I think that there isn't a clear-cut answer there for trapping a room with a zombie. On their website, I think they would consider anybody getting out as a success um, but definitely as an individual you feel like if you're captured it's a, it's a semi-failure although it's interesting you say the thing about sacrificing yourself to me that means you've succeeded if you get somebody else out because you sacrifice yourself to me that means yeah you've done your job so yeah it's quite it's quite an interesting angle one i've always liked the idea of and i'm, I'm not aware of any games that have ever done this is uh, it's some sort of spacecraft escape room and the, the spaceship was going to, to blow up. So you've got some sort of bomb on board or the, some sort of time that's going to, to cause the, the spaceship to die. And you have some escape pods to get out in. I'd really like to see a game where, with, say, five minutes left, 
you have to launch one of the escape pods and you're only allowed to launch one each minute. So if you don't start launching with about five minutes to go, you won't all be able to escape. I'd love to see a game where you have to start making decisions about, okay, this person's going to leave now. Their game is now going to be over. And the remainder have to solve the next puzzle to get into the other escape pods. Because I think that would really add to the psychological pain of playing a game where you kind of, you're really having to make a decision under high pressure about what the best way to proceed is to, to try and get you all out. I think that'd be so exciting. Again, you're going to have some people saying, well, I don't want to be in the first pod and then miss what comes later. But if they definitely sort of get out, therefore they are, they are successful, rather than gambling, it appeals to different aspects of different people. Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't even know which one I'd want to be. Whether I'd want to be the person who's like, yeah, I've done my job and got out, or whether I'd want to be there till the end. I definitely think it'd be interesting to see what would happen in, in an escape room like that. Just going back to when you said about trapped in a room with a zombie, made me think of also uh, two point eight hours later, which I played oh. um, a few years ago. And for those who don't know what that is, it is obviously based on. 28 days later and 28 weeks later it is a set wherever this one was in manchester you're in a real world kind of assault course running around with zombies chasing after you and you have to try and complete a mission and then get back to base with a new water supply i think it was when we were playing as you're going round, zombies chase after you and if they catch you they stamp you on your hand with cart or, or whatever and then when you get back to base you walk through a UV light that shows whether you've got any of these cart stamps on you or not if you've been caught you're directed one way and if you haven't been caught you're directed another way and then you all meet back together for photos and fun and, and chatting and what afterwards but that would be a really good way of sort of showing two different sort of outcomes of the game that this is option one or this is option two and you're both going back together and having a great time but it reflects what's happened in the game yeah no I, when you were talking about that i was uh, it made me think you've played sacrifice haven't you the clue hq game i have indeed how does that feel because i'm right in thinking that that's one where half the players get out and half the players die in the process or in fact are sacrificed that's right. Uh, you have to play two teams against each other in duplicate rooms and the theme is that one of you is going to be sacrificed and that's the team that doesn't get out and therefore as soon as one of you gets to the door that's the end for the other team and they are sacrificed and they don't have the chance to play through the rest of the room or whatever else. Yeah, I think that's it's, it's an interesting way of making the games different but I'd be really uncomfortable with that the, the team dynamic makes me wonder the fact that I'm uncomfortable with that makes me wonder how well I'd like some of these other options where the, the kind of some individuals succeed some of the individuals don't, don't before I forget I also wanted to talk about 2.8 hours later because you didn't mention it but I don't know if you're aware that 2.8 hours later went into liquidation of, uh, about a year ago and the rights for 2.8 hours later was bought by an escape route um, agent of Ember in London so I'm quite curious to see what's going to happen there because I think that could be really exciting taking together the concept of 2.8 hours later and adding a bit more of the escape room philosophy to it there are already some um, zombie based games like Trapped in a Room with a Zombie but 
I think there could be some some quite fun things going on there, and I'm really excited to to hear from um, the guy who runs it what he's going to get up to. Yeah, that's something to look forward to. Obviously, I'd be interested in that, having played the 2.8 towers and loving escape games. So yeah, sign me up. Right, great. Well, let's move on then to lock in or keep out. Three, two, one. Go on, go on. Oh, Okay, so last time we talked about books and why they upset me. Uh, today, Ken's going to talk about walkie-talkies. Yeah, so uh, walkie-talkies. I played a game recently where there was walkie-talkie which frustrated me, and it made me think about the how they affect games and, and whether they're really something which we need in, in uh, escape rooms or whether there are better alternatives. In particular, the main use of walkie-talkies are to communicate with your host, um, with your games master. And I don't know how you feel, Mark, but for me, they've always been a little bit frustrating. You're talking to somebody, potentially English isn't your first language, potentially it's not their first language. Um, it's over a slightly um, noisy connection. Uh, there might be some interference. I always find them a bit hard to use anyway because you've got to press the button and you've got to wait until um, a couple of seconds have passed for a connection to be made and then you've got to talk and then that goes button, then the other side has to do the same. And it's a very, it seems a very inefficient way of uh, community, communicating, um, certainly if they're not duplex, but um, full duplex uh, walkie-talkies and you're having to do that alternating back and forth. Uh, have you used them much in escape rooms? I, I wouldn't say I've used them a lot. The first time I came across them, I thought it was incredibly cool because I thought it was deliberately on theme. We were playing a room where we were um, a SWAT team going into on a, on a mission to, to rescue someone or what have you, and therefore someone crackling in over a walkie-talkie felt like you were walking around the room with your, your gun and your torch or whatever trying to do. And I thought, oh, what a great idea. Then I went back to that same uh, site and did and were given walkie-talkies while we're in, in jail or in an office or whatever it was. And <laughs> it didn't quite have the same thing. And then I got the same or similar thoughts to, to what, as you've just expressed there. Yeah, so... Um... And there are obvious alternatives to it um, that many escape rooms use. One of them is to have a screen in the room where it just clues come up on the screen and then they have a camera, as always, and you have to communicate in some way. Maybe there's a, a microphone so you can talk to the person. Um, and that, for me, is the generally preferred way. The other option, which is used in a very few places, thankfully, but I believe in the States it's a bit more common, is to have someone walk into the room and give you the clues. If you need a clue, you ask for it and then... Uh, they walk in and tell you the answer. Or um, an escape room, of course. Uh, yes, <laughs> escape room in Preston. Uh, and uh, so what's your feeling on that? I did a chat with someone online the other day from Canada, and they were saying kind of the opposite of that, in that they expected to have someone in the room with them to give hints, and us crazy Brits were using video screens to communicate and I, I was absolutely gobsmacked because to me, the the way of subtly being nudged in the right direction by someone watching you by pop, popping up on the screen is a lot more to my taste than the immersion being broken by someone coming uh, speaking to you. Yeah, I always remember um, when I was trapped in a vampire's dungeon uh, several thousand years in the future, one of the last humans on Earth, the uh, group of us were the final humans on Earth, 
and getting a little bit stuck in this uh, dungeon for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into, but uh, pressing the button on the wall and having um, the illusion somewhat spoiled by having another human appear. And that kind of just, to me, really made me feel like oh, this just breaks all the illusion. I know we're, we're suspending disbelief whenever we play escape rooms, but anything you can do to avoid it is good. And it's strange because obviously having a screen on the wall it totally breaks the illusion of being in in almost any any situation but somehow i accept that it's kind of like that that's the one part of a room which can be off theme for me you can have a screen up on the wall and things can appear there to help you and that just feels like well it is a game when you do need help and and that's a kind of subtle way of introducing help into the game um i think having a person come in it just i find it's too clumsy more than anything else you know they really they take a they come in they take maybe 30 seconds or a minute to find out where you're up to, find out what help you're wanting and to give you the help. Whereas the screen can literally interfere for maybe 10 seconds. You know, you look, you hear the noise, you look up, you see the clue and you continue on your way. The, the other thing that, that's worth mentioning is, so those are three options, the walkie talkies versus the screens versus person coming to the room. A few places do something very different. They do something entirely on theme with some sort of message passing, which I've seen work amazingly well and i've seen work okay i do like it if they have some sort of on theme style for that part of the game um, but we're moving a bit away from walkie talkies let's move back back to talking about walkie talkies the other way they're used is where you're in a room where you get split up and in that situation it's a little bit better in that you probably can talk to your colleagues your teammates uh, over the walkie talkie and understand each other better and it introduces an interesting dynamic in terms of communications, but I still get very frustrated with that approach, particularly if um, it turns out that just shouting is better um, because you're in a room that's relatively close by, the walls aren't necessarily very thick because it's a temporary uh, setup for the, the escape room. Uh, and so you feel like, well, I'm using this walkie-talkie because that's kind of what the game tells me to do. But actually, if I was just turn the walkie-talkie off and talk a bit louder, then I'd be able to understand this even better. Um, and that always frustrates me a bit. This has happened in the game we've played together, so we know yeah. uh, we know how annoying it can be. But even if shouting through the wall isn't the most subtle of options, it's also just physically easier. I yeah. don't come into walkie-talkies a lot in my day-to-day -day life, so getting into that habit of uh, pressing the button when I'm speaking and then letting go of it when I want to hear them come back is kind of awkward and fiddly for me and I know it's not a big thing but it's something else that is then taken away from the conversation I'm trying to have and the conversation is trying to solve a puzzle and the puzzle is time bound and it's adding something that doesn't feel like it necessarily should be there it isn't enhancing the experience yeah I think enhancing the experience is the key part so the way I thought of this was communication is difficult and makes the game more fun. Having to communicate between the, the two teams will always uh, make it more exciting. But that doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be difficult in any other way than the straight communication. As soon as you introduce some technology that makes that communication more painful than it needs to be, that just feels like you're just making the game less fun. And you really have to concentrate on things that will make the game fun. So if you think that splitting the teams up and making the communicate is more fun, then great. And I think it is. 
if you think that adding a walkie-talkie in um, to communicate over is, is fun, then great. And if you think that them having to talk one at a time back and forth is makes it more fun, at that point, it isn't more fun. It's just frustrating. So uh, at that point, I think it's, it's the wrong choice and there are better options. Um, either um, two-way walkie-talkies, that would work fine for me, basically phones, we might call them, um, or uh, a straight intercom system, which is just connecting the two rooms in, in, in the same way as you might um, you might have an intercom between the uh, the room and the, the host. Yeah, so I think it's possibly something you could say on every, on every debate, but if there is a good reason to have walkie-talkies in there, then great. But thinking that walkie-talkies is a fun, interesting part of everyday life that everyone will be comfortable with as a communication method is probably a mistake and you shouldn't just put them in just because you can yeah i think you've sold me on the actually there are good reasons to have them i was coming into this very much with the i don't like walkie talkies there are better solutions in every situation but i think you're right that the thing you said about the swat team there are circumstances in which it's on theme and which it makes you feel more like you're in that situation um, and maybe even that the frustration of communicating over a walkie-talkie would would fit in with that. You have to be really careful. But yeah, I can see it working. And yeah, they're they're acceptable. There there are situations in which I can accept a, an escape room doing it because yeah, it's the theme, or because it's a cheap escape room and they're trying to to bring down costs as much as possible. But in an ideal world, yeah, go for something a bit more high tech, you know, the screen option, or or low tech and just go for the message passing in a an on theme mechanism cool okay well that's it from us for today ken i will see you at next week's unconference which i'm really yeah, looking, looking forward, forward to, to and uh, we'll speak to you all again and tell you all about it i'm sure in our next episode but today it's uh bye bye from me and bye bye from ken yep bye bye